0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you open your Bibles tonight to the book of Habakkuk, three chapters in the Old Testament. If you don't know where that is, I bet chances are somebody around you does. So you could ask them, or just look over their shoulder, and you're thinking, what in the world does Habakkuk have to do with communion, the Lord's Supper? Everything. It was said of Charles Spurgeon, as well as others, that they could take any portion of the Bible and from there point to Christ. And Jesus said, all of the scripture speaks of him. So we'll see how this book refers to him. Now, because of the the time that we have, we probably will not cover every verse of the book. I'm going to give you summary statements of paragraphs and things to show you how it fits together. So, number one, you're going to have to trust me. uh, And number two, you're going to have to follow carefully to get it all Together at the end. So let's just have a word of prayer for that. Lord, we've been uh, singing and praying all night for different things, and now we come to a time in our service that requires more attention because we feel like young Samuel, who would say, Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. We pray you would speak. You would speak through the words you have spoken that have been long written down that we'd apply them to our own lives, and in thus doing, we would see change. Thank you, Lord, for this very powerful little book in the Old Testament. In Jesus' name, amen. If you wanted to, you could name the book of Habakkuk The Problems of a Puzzled Prophet. Because... The book is about problems that this guy has with God. It's not so much a prophecy, though there are prophetic elements in it. But it's the struggle that a man has with what God is doing. Now, here's a guy that wrote 2,500 years ago. And as you go through it, you discover it's very contemporary. It sounds like it could, be, could have been written today, yesterday, this last month. The book is really a conversation. And you'll see that sometimes he speaks, the prophet Habakkuk. And then God responds. Then he speaks and God responds. And we move through two chapters of that conversation until the third chapter, which is a hymn of praise and thanksgiving. Now, this man, this prophet, wrote 26 years before the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. But, at the time, there was no indication that that Jerusalem would fall to the Babylonians. Everything seemed great. The nation felt secure. There was no... Indication on the horizon that the prophet could see that would indicate they're at our doorstep. We're going to be overthrown. In fact, when he writes this, there has just been a renewal under a great king by the name of Josiah. King Josiah, a great, a godly young leader who brought spiritual reformation to his country had just occurred. However, following him were other kings, and it's just typical. It really is typical. You can have a great revival, and then shortly afterwards, people go right back to where they were. Sometimes even worse than where they were. Everybody remembers how tender people were after September 11th. You have politicians talking about God and Jesus and singing and singing on the Capitol steps, and that didn't last very long. When I was in New York City this last week, it was different than being in New York City after 9-11. And even the New Yorkers were telling me, you know, when 9-11 happened, we were all nice to each other for like two weeks. (laughs) So you've got this prophet. who looks around and sees that his nation is falling apart, he talks to God about it. God answers him. It's not the answer he expects. And now he's got a bigger problem with God. Now, Chip Lusco opened up our service by reading Psalm 73, which is a perfect introduction to this book. Because there, the psalmist by the name of Asaph also has the same problem. Why do good people suffer? And bad people seem to get away with everything. And God doesn't stop it. Habakkuk's question really isn't, Why do bad things happen to good people? Habakkuk asks, Why do bad things happen to God's people? Why is it that if you're godly, and you seek the Lord, and you search for His will, That you suffer so for it when people who could care less about God seem to be so carefree. Those who are careless seem to be so carefree. He has an issue with that here. The book opens in gloom. I just want you to notice this at the onset. It opens on a sour note, a question. It opens in gloom. It ends in glory. You might say, it begins with a question mark, but it ends with an exclamation point. And by the way, I hope that every time you're exposed to the truths of the Word of God, that it would end with an exclamation point. That you would have the kind of clarity and the kind of fervor in your relationship with God that maybe you didn't have coming in. You might have an issue, a problem. Something's weighing you down, some burden, question mark. But that God, the Holy Spirit, speaks through the process of the message or the quiet time you have, and you walk away with an exclamation point. And so the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw, "O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence, and you will not save." Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore for perverse judgment proceeds. Did you know... That King Josiah, the governing king at the time, was eight years old when he became king. I know, that sounds really scary. (laughs) Talk about no experience. And yet, the guy turned out to be an incredibly godly young man. At 16 years of age, he called for a national revival and was able to purge a lot of the sinful practices away from the land, reinstitute some of the godly practices back into the land, and brought renewal. It was good. But following Josiah were four cruddy kings. I'll give you a quick rundown. Jehoahaz took his place. He sat upon the throne of Judah for three months before he was deposed by Pharaoh Necho down in Egypt. After Jehoahaz, the next king was Jehoiakim, who was on the throne for 11 years. Not a good king, very self-centered, very ungodly. After Jehoiakim came Jehoiachin. He was on the throne three years... No. Three months and ten days, and he was kicked off. And then finally, King Zedekiah was placed on the throne, and he was the final king before the children of Israel went into captivity by the Babylonians. That covers a 26-year period that I mentioned that the prophet wrote before that captivity. So, there was revival. Things looked great, but things went downhill very quickly afterwards because of these kings. And you got a prophet a very godly man, looking around, seeing that ungodly people in his own country were prospering. That the revival that once started, those godly people seemed to be drifting away. And they were surrounded more by the ungodly than the godly. So he talks to God about it. He issues his complaint here. Verse 5, the Lord begins to answer him. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days, which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. So the Lord answers him. Here you got a prophet complaining, God, look at all these wicked people in my own nation. Why don't you do anything? You've been silent and your silence troubles me. So he accuses God of being inactive. And God says, well, Habakkuk, you're accusing me of being very inactive. Actually, I'm at work. I've got a plan. I'm going to tell you something that you're not going to like. And it was an answer he didn't expect. Here's his answer. I've been noticing your nation. It is wicked. And I'm going to do something about it. In fact, I'm going to raise up people more wicked than all of these people around you, the Babylonians, and they're going to come in and destroy your nation. That's not the answer he expected. I'm sure Habakkuk thought, well, God, I thought you were going to say you're going to send a revival like you did under Josiah. Instead, you tell me you're going to send judgment. This really bothers him. And you'll see it as we work through. It's like, okay, look, I know we're not perfect. I just said that. I just complained about that. But compared to the Babylonians, we're like saints. God says, I'm going to use a nation more wicked than the wicked nation you're complaining about to bring judgment upon them. Now, I I mentioned there was no indication at all that this was going on. In fact, there really wasn't any kind of a movement in Babylon to take over that part of the world. At this time, over in that part of the world, Babylon, Iraq, a man by the name of Nabopolassar. Who was the father of Nebuchadnezzar? Conquered the Assyrians who had been the big dogs for a long time. Nabopolassar was now the emperor. But there was uh, an army and a nation down south that really was a rival power, it was Egypt. And then there was a confrontation between Nabopolassar, the Babylonian, and Pharaoh Necho, the Egyptian. One of the most famous battles in history called the Battle of Carchemish. And at that battle, the Babylonians won. Now that tipped the balance of power. And it thrust Nabopolassar and his son Nebuchadnezzar into the forefront of being rulers of the world. And the great Babylonian empire began. All of that was beginning to happen. At this time. So God answers him. He continues in verse 8 Their horses are also swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. The Babylonians were so fast in their military attacks that they would surprise people by their rapid strikes and it would strike terror into people's hearts. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. Now notice how cavalry is spelled. And I just thought it's a good time to mention, sometimes we are called Cavalry Chapel. But we're not a military outfit, honestly. We're not militant. We preach the gospel of peace. Now, we are Calvary after the hill Calvary in the New Testament where Jesus was crucified, not cavalry. Just thought I'd throw that in. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. Interesting phraseology. Some of you may remember way back when the law was given under Moses. In the book of Deuteronomy, when the law was restated, Deuteronomy chapter 28, God promises that if his people rebel against him and disobey, God says, I will call for a nation from afar as swift as, As the eagle flies, speaking a language you do not understand, and they will bring you into captivity. So I think there's a reference to that in God's answer to Habakkuk. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earth and mounds and seize it. And then his mind changes, and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. Now this may be a reference to Nebuchadnezzar later on. You see where it says he changes his mind? It could be better translated, he will lose all reason. You remember that time it's recorded in Daniel chapter 4 where Nebuchadnezzar's walking through Babylon and he looks at the walls and the palaces and he says, Is not this the great Babylon which I have built? That was a mistake. Because in a sense he was worshipping himself. He was his own God. He had erected himself as his idol. He ascribed his greatness not to God who allowed him to be in that position, but to himself. And because of that pride... The Lord made him nuts. He became like a wild beast. He went outside and started eating grass for seven seasons of the year. So about two and a half years passed him by. Or a year and and three quarters passed him by where he's out eating grass like a crazy man until he comes to his senses and gives glory to God. I think it's a reference to that. Now, God answers the prophet. The prophet says, I have a problem with people in my own nation. They're not very godly. It's a very carnal country that I'm in. God says, okay, let me tell you what I'm going to do about it. I'm bringing in a foreign power who's going to knock you off your feet and take you captive and destroy your holy places. Uh, Well, God, uh, that's not really what I had in mind. Now listen to what the prophet answers. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. So you see, he, he quickly goes from perplexity to anxiety. He's perplexed about his nation now. He's in deep anxiety because of the answer that God gives him. Look, I know we're bad, but they're a lot worse than we are. It would sort of be equivalent to... American Christians complaining about the carnality of the Christian church in America, and God saying, Okay, I have a plan. I'm going to bring Al Qaeda against you and destroy your fortunes, and terrorists will take over your land, and you'll become humble once again. We would react, Hey, now wait a minute, God. We're the good guys. Why don't you send a revival instead of a terrorist? But that's what's happening in ancient Israel, as God promises to judge them for their sin. So now he has another problem. He has another issue he's dealing with. The problem Habakkuk now faces is, How do I reconcile the actions that God says he's going to take with the attributes that I already know about God? God is good. God is just. God is loving. Those are the attributes. But the action that God says he's going to take is to bring in a more wicked nation to hurt us. How do I reconcile that? That's the issue that he deals with. Verse 13. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when wicked? the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? That would be us, Lord. We're more righteous than they are. Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net. They gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice to their net. They burn incense to their dragnet. Because by them their share is sumptuous and their food is plentiful. They're like fishermen who go out and indiscriminately catch all sorts of fish just for the sake of doing it. They're catching us like fish in their net. God, you're not doing anything about it. You're not stopping it. Verse 17 concludes chapter 1. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations... Without pity. So the chapter ends in tension. He asks a question. He deals with a question. And we're left hanging. Okay, God, you're so good. Why don't you do something about the wickedness in our own country? Well, I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to judge them by using the Babylonians. Now, wait a minute. How is that just? I thought you were of pure eyes. Purer than to behold evil. They're going to bring evil upon us. We all deal with the problem of evil. Every one of you has asked the question, Why would God allow this situation to be happening to me? Right? You've all dealt with it. Every human being deals with that issue. Trouble is, they deal with it differently. One response to evil is called atheism. Because there is evil in the world there cannot be a good God. I see evil around me, I choose not to believe in a God at all. Second response, more typically, is agnosticism. There is evil, but there is evidence that there's a God, but I just am unsure. I don't know. That's what agnosis, without knowledge in Greek means. I don't know. By the way, agnosco, without knowledge, agnostic, the Latin translation is ignoramus. Same word. It's somebody who just isn't sure, doesn't know. I like an honest agnostic. Trouble is, I don't meet many of them. See, an honest agnostic will ask the question and then go on a search to get it answered. Some use that as a smokescreen. Oh, I'm an agnostic. But they're not on an active search to answer any of the questions they say they have. It's a convenient way to not deal with it. A third response to evil is called deism. Deism. God is reduced to a cause, a power. The great first uncaused cause, if you've been in a philosophy course. And deists say that God was once active and he wound everything up like a great clock. And then he stepped back. So in the 1960s, you had the God is Dead movement. And deism spread throughout our land. You have a fourth response to evil, and that is idealism. And some Christians fall into that category that says there is evil, it does exist. But if you're a child of God, you never have to experience evil or suffering. Hallelujah. You never have to be sick. You never have to fall under the curse that's on the earth. All you have to do is have enough faith, and you'll never experience it. All of those are inappropriate ways of dealing with evil. The final way to deal with evil is the best way. That is realism. Biblical realism that says... There is a God. He is good. Evil does exist. God is allowing it to exist for a while, but there will come a day when God will deal with it and eradicate it completely. Question is, what do we do in the meantime? That's where the answer of the book comes in. You have a perplexed prophet speaking to his God about evil. God answers it. The prophet doesn't like the answer. He gets more torn up. But he says this in chapter 2, verse 1. This is a good move on the prophet's part. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he, God, will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Boy, it's always a good idea. When you try to reason things out and you come to an end of your own reason... To take this position. I'll wait. I'll wait. Create a compartment in your mind. Called. And label it. Called waiting for further information. And when you get to the end. Of dealing with an issue. And you're perplexed. And you can't discover. Why God is allowing this to happen to you. File that in. Waiting for further information. Say I'm going to wait for the Lord. I'm going to wait on the Lord. Step back from it. Get into a quiet spot. Talk to God about it. And remind yourself of the character of God, what you know to be true about the God you serve. And bank on those things. And then take all that you don't understand and approach it by faith. Live by faith. That's the answer God gives the prophet. He, he's, he will tell him who he is, what he has done, reminds him of that. But in the meantime, you walk by faith. So, verse 2 is the answer now. See, it's a conversation back and forth. prophet says, I'm going to slow down here. I'm going to wait for further information. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision. Make it plain or write large letters, legible letters on tablets. There were clay tablets back then, and in public arenas, public areas like markets, clay tablets were public notices. Uh, They were written upon clay tablets. The clay would harden. The thing would be hung up so people could read it. So I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to give you several visions of the future, what's coming up. I want you to write it down in large, legible letters. So that's how we know that Habakkuk wasn't a doctor, because you could read his handwriting. Large, legible letters. That he may run who reads it, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. But at the end, it will speak. And it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Now let me give you a summary of Chapter 2, that's the introduction. And this is what God is going to say to this prophet. I am going to judge the people of Judah. I am going to use the Babylonians to do it. Eventually, I'm going to judge the Babylonians for coming against my people and going too far. And in the future, beyond the Babylonian captivity, the future looks glorious. The knowledge of the Lord will cover all of the land one day. So, here it is. I'm God, I'm good, evil exists. One day I will eradicate all of evil. In the meantime, this is what you need to do. Here it is, verse 4. This is the pinnacle of the book now, the highlight of the book. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Can you see it? There's Habakkuk. He's living not by faith, but by sight. He looks around. He's perplexed. He's in distress. Things are bad in my country. God lets him look a little bit further down the road. Makes it worse. You think it's bad now? Wait till the Babylonians get here. It's really going to be bad. So he's living by sight. He doesn't get it. He's at the end of his reason. It doesn't make sense to him. So God says, says Habakkuk. In the meantime, you've got to learn to live by faith. The just will trust. He compares two ways of life, the proud and the just. The proud live one way, the just or righteous live another way. The Babylonians will live this way, the disobedient people in Judah live this way. I want you as my prophet and all the godly ones to live by faith. Now I say that this verse, chapter 2, verse 4, is a pinnacle of this book. It made such an impact on Paul the Apostle that three times in the New Testament this verse is quoted to speak about the greatest of all doctrines, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Book of Romans, book of Galatians, and the book of Hebrews all quote verse 4. It's a central fact uh, doctrine in the New Testament. Because of this verse, the prophet Habakkuk is called the grandfather of the Reformation. I don't know if you caught that. You know who the father of the Reformation was? Martin Luther. He's called the grandfather of the Reformation because the Reformation started by Martin Luther reading this verse, though quoted by Paul in the book of Romans. Let me tell you the story. Martin Luther was raised in the medieval Catholic church, and it was a system that was greatly concentrated on their own works, not any kind of faith at all, but you get to heaven by meritorious deeds. You are going to work hard, and if you do a lot of hard work and make lots of indulgences and pay enough money, you might make it into heaven. That's what he lived under. He was always burdened by his sin. Never had any rest. One day he was reading this verse. Didn't make sense to him. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. He tucked it away and waiting for further information. He joined the Augustinian monastery at Erfurt, Germany. He studied the scripture. And at one time in his seminary career, he left and went to Rome. And he writes that he was in a church, a very famous church called St. John's Lateran. While he was in that church looking at a very interesting staircase, and the legend of that church is that this staircase used to be Pontius Pilate's staircase that was miraculously, instantly transported from Jerusalem to Rome in that church. the place where Jesus stood trial. And on the staircase there was glass and blood purported by some to be the blood of Christ. And he watched... As people got on their knees and climbed those stairs and bloodied their knees and through pain and suffering were working to climb up and down and up and down those stairs and bleeding and suffering so that they might gain the favor of Christ. This verse came alive in his heart. He remembered it. The just shall live by faith. He went back home to the monastery in Erfurt, Germany on the way He stopped by a very important city known as Wittenberg. And in his hand were 95 theses that he had against the organized Roman church. And at the heart of it is that we're not saved by any works that we do, but by faith in Christ alone, by his finished work on the cross, an act of God's grace, which is what communion is all about. So now you know why this prophet is called the grandfather of the Reformation. Indeed, verse 5, and we're going to sum up now a lot of this. Because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man, he does not stay at home. And from chapter uh, verse 5 all the way down, let me tell you what it is. There's five stanzas of three verses each, equally spaced, it's a poetic writing. It's Hebrew poetry. Five stanzas of three verses each telling five woes that God has against the Babylonians. So look at verse 6. By the way, you know the word woe in the Hebrew language. You know what it is. It's oy. That's, that's the Hebrew word. Oy. You know, sort of like in a typical Jewish home, at least in a, in, a, in American culture. Oy, they say when something isn't right. And so God looks in verse 6 and it says, Will not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, Oy to him who increases what is not his? How long? So the first woe is against greed. Verse 9, Oy to him who covets evil, gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. Second woe the injustice of that country. Verse 12 is the third one. Woe, oi, to him who builds a town with bloodshed and establishes the city by iniquity. So violence. The fourth one is verse 15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. Fourth was against Their seduction, trying to entice other people to sin. Remember that pressure in high school? Come on, have a drink. Or, come on, dude. The fifth and final one is in verse 19 Woe to him who says to wood, awake, and to silent stone, arise, and it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet there's no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silent before him. The fifth is against idolatry. And that's the worst of all. To take a statue and ascribe personality to it and worship that statue, that image, which looks shiny, but it's lifeless. And anyone who worships something lifeless will become lifeless. Whoever worships something living becomes living. You become like what you worship. That's why in verse 20, But the Lord is in His holy temple. We serve and worship a living God. Now chapter 3 is a prayer. It's a response. He's heard what God had to say. He's argued it back and forth with God. And God has told this prophet that He's going to judge the sinful people of Judah using the Babylonians, a pagan, godless, terroristic country. But eventually he's going to deal with them. In the end it's going to be glorious and the good news will cover the land. And in the meantime, wait, trust, the just shall trust. So look at just a sampling of it and we'll close. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigionot which are probably musical instruments. This was a, probably a very lively worship song with musical accompaniment. Oh Lord, I've heard your speech and was afraid. Get this prayer though. O oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. The word revive means to renew or let it live. It, let, let me sum it up. Let me give you a paraphrase. God, all right, I resign, I trust you, what you told me I don't like, the work that you said you're going to do I don't like, but do your work, do it anyway, if the end result is going to be what you promised, do what it takes, but, but, be merciful when you do it. Use the Babylonians to correct us. You want to use them to spank us? Go ahead. But please, be merciful when you do so. Add your mercy to your wrath. And the rest of it, he prays and he looks back to Egypt, the great works of God speaking at Mount Sinai through the law, accompanying signs of lightning and thunder. Verse 8, he looks back to the river, the Red Sea that was opened up and the Jordan River that brought them into their land. Verse 11, he looks back to the long day of Joshua. Look at that verse. The sun and the moon stood still in their habitation. and the light of your arrows they went. So he's going back and taking selective scenes from Jewish history. And in his prayer, he's remembering God has opened the Red Sea. He's given us the law. He made the sun and the moon stand still in the valley of Agilon. Joshua chapter 10. God can do anything. So he's now resting on what he knows to be true about God and his powerful gestures. And so we end it in verse 16. When I heard my body trembled, didn't like what I heard, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered my bones, I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. But get this, this now is the peak of the book in my view. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there's no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength, He will make my feet like deer's feet, he will make me walk on my high hills to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. Do You see now how the prophet goes from perplexity to anxiety, but ends in ecstasy. He's looking forward to the Babylonian captivity. He, he looks at the fields in his mind's eye. He goes, I know they're going to come in and destroy the olives, the figs, the grapes and the flocks. They're going to take captive. They're going to destroy us. And though all of that happens around me, yet I will rejoice, not in the invasion of Babylon, I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. You could translate that, I will spin around, like the song we just sang said, I will spin around and jump for joy in the Lord. Now whenever you do that at a time of trouble, people will think you're nuts. Let them. In fact, get into a position where you have to explain yourself. Why are you so happy? It's Monday morning. Why are you so joyful? You just lost everything. Look at what's going on around you. I'm going to rejoice not in what's going on around me. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. When bad things happen to you, Your first question is this, How can I get out of this? Be honest. That's exactly what you ask. How can I get out of this? I'm going to ask you to change your question next time. When something bad happens, ask, What can I get out of this? What is the Lord trying to teach me? What is He trying to show me? What instruction do I need during this time? To where you can say, Lord, I don't like what I hear. But do your work, whatever it takes. Just be merciful. Because I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. Here's what God showed to this prophet. What we call the worst can sometimes be the best. The worst thing that could happen to Israel is the Babylonians come against them. God would say, oh no, not so. Because the result is you're going to be so repentant and so humble... I can take what you call the worst and make it the best. We're going to celebrate communion in a matter of moments. Communion shows us, once again, that God can take the very worst and make the best out of it. The very worst thing that could possibly happen in all of history would be the death of God. But God showed... That by the death of God, the Son, on the cross at Calvary, for the world it became the very best thing. Because by that one act, forgiveness could be granted to everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus Christ. God proved his philosophy that he gave to this prophet, he proved it on himself. He took the very worst thing and made it the very best thing. And we celebrate death tonight. We speak of elements that speak of blood. And some people accuse us of having a bloody religion. You betcha. And we're proud of it. Because it's only by the blood of Jesus Christ that a person can find forgiveness. And so we take these elements that represent the body and the blood because that's where our sins are dealt with. As we pray, the communion board is going to come forward and we're going to pass out the elements and rejoice together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the work of your Son upon Calvary's cross. If someone were to have told the disciples, and Jesus did try, that he was going to Jerusalem to die, they would have gotten all upset, and they did. Peter said, oh no, far be it from you, Lord. That's the worst thing that could happen. And you showed it's the very best thing. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy that saved us from our sins. And whatever we're going through tonight, whatever things this group of people, your children, are experiencing, as bad as it is, we ask you, Lord, what do you want us to get out of it? What do you want to show us? Revive your work. Do your work, Lord, in the midst of years. And we'll rejoice in you. In fact, we'll, by faith, jump for joy. In Jesus' name.